Hello and welcome to Dad Educates Daughter, episode three. I'm Russell and this is Rebecca. Hi, Dad. Hi, how are you? I'm not bad. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So how have you found this week? This week has been probably one of my favourites. I mean, I know we're only in week three, but we're getting into the music where I'm like more familiar with it so I've really enjoyed it and I've been thinking about a lot of things and reasons why we started this so I've really got into it this week and I think Connor and his kids are a bit fed up with me playing a few songs okay I I thought you might enjoy this one a bit more it's not synth pop bands as such I was going to ask what they were yeah, so I'll go into them. I mean, they they sort of changed their music, I suppose, as the decade went on, which is why they were both probably, as I said before, two of the four biggest successful bands um, of that time of the 80s. So it was going to be interesting how you perceive this from younger ears, so to speak. Just before we start, I did um, just want to mention, I know this is going out in a few weeks' time, but um, obviously we spoke about how video and cassettes or the Sony Walkman have sort of helped and revolutionised music and helped, I suppose, the 80s music evolve. Something that wasn't really um, shown in the in the news this week is that the inventor of the cassette tape, a Lou Ottens, Ottens, he actually died this week, aged 94. So he invented the cassette in 1963. So he actually invented it quite a while before, but it was mainly used like for audio dictaphones and things like that rather than music. And then obviously when Sony Walkman come along, that was sort of to, to revolutionise music. The making of it. Yeah, yeah. But what I didn't know is he was also involved in the making of the seed the compact disc. So he not only revolutionised music with the with the cassette, but it was he was also involved um with the um making of the CD or the compact disc. And it just says at the end in the in the report I saw that Mr. Oatens retired in 1986 and in a 2013 interview with Time magazine to mark the 50th anniversary of the cassette tape, he said it was a sensation from the moment it was unveiled. While cassette tapes were largely considered obsolete by 2020 due to the popularity of the CD, there has been a resurgence in their popularity in recent years. Despite the emergence of new ways of listening to music, such as MP3s and streaming, which is obviously for your generation, in 2020, more than 150,000 cassettes were sold in the UK, double the previous year's total. Mr. Oten said he was bemused by this, adding that fans seem to prefer a worse quality of sound out of nostalgia and that nothing can match the sound of the CD. So there we go. Yeah, some sad news, but as I say, it was 94, so not, not a bad age. Yeah, good going for it. But I'm surprised. So was it cassettes that had a rise in sales or CDs? No cassettes. I'm shocked. Like, I know a lot of people have gone back to vinyls, but not cassettes. Your cars are made with Bluetooth, so you can primarily use your phone, say. You still have CDs in there, but there's no car with cassettes. There's nothing with cassettes, really. So that's quite... Unless people are just collecting them. Like, you know how you have them? You can't exactly listen to them unless you have anything that you can put them in. But you've got them as more collector's items, and you've started getting CDs like how you've got it's electric on cassette and cd yeah i'll be honest i I didn't know that you could still buy cassettes no nor did i vinyls have come back as you say but other than cds obviously it's it's all about streaming or playing through a device like amazon echo and the sort but i I didn't know um cassettes but as it says one hundred and fifty thousand were sold and double the previous year 
I wonder who's buying them because I highly doubt it's my generation. It must be like your generation, maybe the one in between me and you, because I, like my generation are the streaming. Yeah, but I don't know what they were, unless they're replacing their LPs. But as I say, most people like prefer to play on an LP um, than a cassette. As you say, you can't, in a car, you're going to be, you know, for my generation, it would be a CD. I don't quite know, buy them because, you know, CDs, you, you might upgrade like I have my cassettes to a CD. But wouldn't upgrade a vinyl to a cassette, I would just do the same again and upgrade that to a CD. But there we go. Some people are. I remember buying you the device to be able to change your cassettes to CDs. I think that's probably one of the best things I've bought you. Yes. <laughs> okay. Shall we move on to this week? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk some music. So you was given four bands. What were your best songs of each? Well, Marth and the Muffins have only had one hit, so that's going to be Echo Beach. I haven't got much choice there. No. That's what I put, but uh, I'll let you know what I thought of them later on. Um, I recognised Echo Beach, by the way, so that weren't a bad shout. Yeah, and what about the other three? Uh, Spandau Ballet. I put Gold, but I chose others as well, because I think Gold is obviously it's the one that everyone knows. And it's funny because listening to Spandau Ballet now and listening to Gold, it's weird to use this word to describe it, especially because I'm not an 80s child, but it was very nostalgic because I was in my car and I found myself singing to it. And it reminded me of the song, uh, of the video that I put up every, every year for your birthday and Father's Day of you in the car singing gold. It's funny because I played it to Connor's kids when I was taking her to school and um, I went, what do you think of this? And now they're eight and five. So Oscar, who's eight, he was like, I don't like it. Aoife was having a great time, but she's five, so doesn't really know. She just likes a bit of music to dance to. But it was really funny to have Oscar do what I was doing to you. And all we needed was him to be sat in the front seat with a phone and record me. And it would have just been like I did to you. But there was me singing it out loud to my heart's content. And I was like, oh, no, I'm becoming my dad. I've actually really enjoyed this song. And now that song, the video that I, I don't know, take the mick out of you for and think it's hilarious that I post it every year. I'm now like, do I post it? Because that's now me. So gold was one. But it, like I say, it's weird that I'm using the word nostalgia, but it's nostalgia to my childhood, I guess, with that video. So that was an obvious. So what I did is I picked, I actually had another two because there was loads. Yeah. I couldn't choose. And I thought gold was too obvious. So I chose Lifeline and round and round okay and duran 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 my favorite song was save a prayer again they were hard to choose out of as well okay and then arcadia well they only had two i chose election day out of them once that was quite hard to choose i'll let you know more on that later sure okay so obviously as you already know i mean if we just stick to the main two i suppose to begin with obviously spandau ballet and duran duran there was four big groups bands of the 80s wham culture club being the other two so you can imagine that they they would have had a lot of as you said there was a lot of music for you to listen to because they had a lot of hits how many number ones do you think were in amongst these two bands so not separately all together how many number ones did the two have? all together how many number ones do you think we've i'm going to be telling you oh i take it martha and the muffins and arcadia doesn't have any no no okay oh oh that's tricky because there's so many yeah i'm looking at the list now i want to go with 13 13 number ones really oh 
Wait, number ones though. Am I going a bit too far fetched? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number ones. Yeah, I think you're going hits, as in like maybe top ten or something. I'm on about number actual number one. When we think that Vienna wasn't even a number one. Okay. Yeah. No. When you remind me of that. If you think the last two episodes, we haven't had many number ones. We had the model in episode one. That was it. And I think there was only one one number one last last week as well. Two two last week. Was it two last week? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, but because you're asking me to guess, I'm like, it's got to be quite a few. Five. Five? Okay. It's three. So even though, that's what, and that's what I'm trying to say about the 80s, even though the music's really good, and as I say, these were two of the biggest bands of the time, between the two of them, they only had three number ones. So either one of the bands had three number ones and the other one had none, or one of them had two and the other one only had one. That's quite shocking. But how does that work, though? Because now, so for me to know these songs and them to be such a big hit, how were they not number ones when you were younger? Who was beating these people? I don't get it. Like, for them to be such big hits and me know them. Yeah. I mean, without me looking back at the charts and seeing who was number one on the ones that obviously missed out, without looking at who was number one, it's hard to say. But what what I'm trying to say, and that's why I gave you Martha and the Muffins, they've only had one hit. But what a song it was. And I suppose that's what shows it, you know. There's a lot of good songs in the 80s that didn't even get a number one. Maybe because there were so many good songs coming out, it was a, it was a competition. Yeah. And it, I suppose it's like, you know, if you ask people, aha, a lot of people think Take On Me was number one. And it wasn't. Spoiler alert. <laughs> didn't know that. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I'll make sure I remember that for when we get to aha. Yeah. <laughs> So if we move on then to Martha and the Muffins, as we said, only one hit, which was the one that you obviously listened to. I'll just put it in here as a gap filler for you to, so you didn't get too concentrated on just listening to the same music in case you didn't like them and gave you a bit of something else to listen to. Um, what did you, what's your thoughts on it? And did it sound like anything you've heard before? I completely recognise the song. Don't know where from, but I think I said this last week. I recognise songs, but I don't know whether I've recognised them because they're playing on an advert or whatever, or because I've grown up with listening to it with you. But I recognise this song. I actually really liked it when I was listening to it. It's a really feel-good song. So to listen to that, I think it was Tuesday morning, Way to Work, Echo Beach, first song. It got me feeling good for work. Really upbeat. Like I really liked it. And as soon as it started playing, I think within the first few notes, I was like, I know it. Considering, like, it doesn't have that much lyrics in it. So considering that, and when you said we're moving on from synth pop, I think that made me notice because it weren't so much like previous weeks where I've listened and gone too instrumental and I don't like the instrumentals. I think because it was so upbeat and such a feel-good song, the lyrics weren't the main focus in, in a good way instead of back when I was listening to Kraftwerk and I was like, I can't even, I had to turn them up. I did listen to others. I went... And had a little look. Just because you gave me one, I was like, okay, let's see. How bad could the others be if she's only got one hit? So I only listened to ones from the same album. So I think it was a 1980 album. And they sounded quite similar. Like, they all sound quite upbeat. Um, but what I did notice is, considering she's only had this one hit, I think she's still going. Because I try not to find anything out to ruin my reactions. But I'm sure I saw an album, and underneath it said, like, 2017, 2018. And I was shocked by that, considering she'd only had this one hit in the 80s. Has she got better? Or is she just going because she enjoys making music? And the vi- the video, I only watched that video, but 
I've noticed a lot of the videos in the 80s, because you say the video started in the 80s, a lot of them are just live performing kind of thing. Not necessarily to a live audience, but they are, the video just involves them playing. Made, made to look like it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was nice to see a woman. Like I said last week, I was like, there's no women. It was nice to see a woman to actually have a focus on what the women wore and how their hair looked. And it was from her, I just got, she was monochrome. I feel like they are very formal in their videos with their dress sense. And I noticed perms. And I didn't know perms were such a big thing in the 80s. I thought that was a 70s thing with the disco. I didn't know perms were such a big thing in the 80s. Why? I think it was the 80s that perms were big. I don't think they were a 70s thing, but I might be wrong now. It's not something I've looked up. Oh, I thought it was the 70s with like the disco hair. Did you never get a perm, Dad? No. Never went down that route when you were younger? No. What nationality do you think Martha was? Martha and the Muffins. Where do you think they're from? Oh, I assume she was English. But I'm going to go, no, she's not English. No, they're Canadian. Oh, I wouldn't have assumed that she was anything thought she was English. Yeah, so I think they've had more hits at home. And Echo Beach was like, you know, went worldwide, international, and was their big hit. But um, otherwise, I think the other ones you've obviously listened to, when you say they're similar, they've probably done well in, in Canadian charts. So it's funny when you say they they sound different because one of the uh, founding members of Martha and the Muffins was David Miller. And he actually dropped out of the band and become their sound engineer. So maybe that helped them in knowing what sort of sound and that they wanted to go by him coming out. And then they had Mark Gain, who was the songwriter. He was also the guitar player. Martha Johnson was the lead vocals. Cole Finkel was on bass. Tim Gain, brother of Mark, was on the drums. And obviously, I suppose it's the first time we've come across the saxophone. So that was used quite a lot. That was Andy Hass. And then when David Miller dropped out, another Martha, Ladley, she joined and she was the keyboardist. And she was like a, a second vocalist. So they had two in the group, but they were already called Martha and the Muffins before the second one joined. And they, I guess they're the first groups that I've listened to in this series that, like you say, we're moving on from the synthesizer a little bit. They're actually a band and are playing their own instruments. Because I, well, I didn't know whether, because when I'm watching the videos and they're playing instruments, I remember you saying about Aha and seeing someone say, oh, I want to know who the drummer is, but they didn't have a drummer. But you said when they play live, they have a drummer. So I get a bit confused. I'm like, are you fooling me? Are you actually playing the instruments? Or is this coming from the synthesizer and this is to make it look good? But this isn't the actual first band that are playing the instruments. A lot of instruments, though. Yeah, yeah. So they were a proper band, I suppose. Um, so you said about their their their, their album, um, they had six albums in the 80s, but only one album in the UK. So as I say, in Canada, they're obviously better known than they were overseas. But the album, that um, and, and obviously um, Echo Beach, was recorded in the UK at Manor Studios in Oxfordshire. So whether they had a bigger budget then or whatever, I don't know the reason why, but yeah. But is this Echo Beach on their first album, or did they? So did they have albums before that? I'm well, not sure how what they were like before. Whether they were from the seventies, like we've obviously spoke about, Craftwork, Joy Division. Um, they were from the seventies. Whether Martha and the Muffins have had hits in the seventies or started out in the seventies. As we're talking about 1980, they probably started in the seventies. Whether they'd had an album before here, though, I don't. I don't know. So although it was the only chart success they had in the UK, Echo Beach, 
they actually had five top 30 hits in the Canadian Chum chart, which was a Toronto radio station's own chart and is known as the longest running top 40 chart in the world for an individual radio station. Bit of interesting fact there, but how, how it works, so whether it's just from sales in Toronto, I, I don't know, but they had five top 30 hits on that chart. What I like about it, as you said earlier, if you've had a bad day or you're feeling down, it is just a sort of song to put on. Yeah, it kind of gets you up. Yeah, and I suppose in these times at the moment with lockdown, I mean, just the verse, from nine to five, I have to spend my time at work. My job is very boring. I'm an office clerk. The only thing that helps me pass the time away is knowing I'll be back on Echo Beach someday. I mean, you could resonate with that at this time, you know, thinking about meeting with people again, going on holidays again, you know, and those that have been working, thinking in the way that that is. It's such a, a well taken, as you say, not much in it. Cause, I mean, then you've got the cause just Echo Beach far away in time, Echo Beach far away in time. Yeah, not going to lie. I didn't look into the lyrics and really pay attention to the lyrics. It's more the actual music itself. It gets you up and makes you really want to dance. Yeah. But then when you said the lyrics, then it's like, oh, actually, she's she's aiming this at certain people. She knows what she's doing. But no, a very, very feel good song. Definitely. Where do you think it charted? So it's obviously in the top 40. Yeah, yeah. I'm rubbish at this, me thinking that, uh, that there was going to be 13 number ones. So I might go and say like number two and it'd be way off but just because I like the song. <laughs> um, okay, let's be reasonable. 32. It was a top 10. It was number 10. Oh, I'm way out. So yeah, 1980, Echo Beach got to number 10 in the UK chart. That's not bad going. And as I say, it's it's one of those songs, it appears on some 80s compilations, but not all. It's a song that I think does stand the test of time as far as the 80s songs go, but I suppose it's not resonant with this, the music of the 80s as such. Yeah, I was just about to say, when you saying it's on some compilations, but not all... Thinking about it just then, when you listen to this song, it's not similar to any other 80s songs that you think of straight away. Like, it is quite different and you wouldn't put it in... Like If you were just to have to guess where songs fall um, when they existed, I wouldn't just go, this is an 80s song. I don't know whether it's because it's a, such a feel-good song, but it doesn't kind of come in with the stereotypical 80s. No, well, remember, you're you're just thinking of early 80s at the moment, just from obviously what we've listened to so far. They're actually the, the songs that are in the 1980. We're probably talking about they're the ones that are out of the ordinary because we're coming out of disco, punk rock, and suddenly going into this synth pop futuristic sound that people hadn't heard before. You know, and then that evolved in the 80s as the decade went by, or, you know, at least up until the mid 80s, more so than probably what Martha and the Muffins were, which was more from the 70s music coming into the 80s. I mean, weirdly, they are on the electronic album, not the electricity one, but they are on electronic. The vinyl one. Yeah, I don't class them as electronic. I wouldn't. No, and from what I've looked up, they are known as an art rock band, which is just a, a, a more softer, I suppose, rock. You just make that up for these. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know how many different subgenres you can have of rock, punk rock, you've got rock, you've got hard rock, soft rock, and as I say, art rock. But that's what they were. It was their only hit, their only song over, over here. But it, I mean, for me, it's, it is a really good song. And that's why I just wanted to share that with you. And I just thought this episode, it would probably be a good one just to, to drop it in. Yeah, no, a good one to definitely share with me. I think I would have been missing out if you didn't share that with me, considering I know it as well. Yeah. 
Okay, we move on then to Spandau Ballet. So you should have a bit to talk about here. Yeah. Well, first one is I remembered uh, good old Gary Kemp and Martin Kemp. And then when I was watching the videos, I recognised him. I was like, <laughs> not to do with Ross Kemp. I know who they are now. But it's because I know Martin Kemp. I didn't know Gary Kemp. But I know Martin Kemp as an actor, like I said a few episodes ago. But it was quite funny to get to Spandau Ballet after my comment about not having a clue who Gary Kemp was. But yeah, like I've already said with Spandau Ballet, it takes me back to car journeys with you which is one of the reasons that we started this whole thing and I knew a lot of their songs without realizing that I knew a lot of their songs but I guess that comes with because I don't listen primarily to 1980s when you are giving me these you know like Martha and the Muffins for example I'm like nope never heard of them then I listen to Echo Beach and I'm like oh I've heard that so um, as much as I know Spandau Ballet I think the only song that I could say the top of my head confidently I would only be able to go gold but then you sending me the list of their hits and listening to it, I realised I knew a lot more than I originally thought. Because you gave me such a variation of the songs, it was really nice to hear like heartfelt songs. You have your upbeat dance ones and you've got your romantic slower ones. So it was really nice to see the variation in their sound and what they can do. I liked that because all the others, I would say it's been similar in what they've done. So it was nice to hear a different sound coming from the artists themselves. And I really think that Spandau Ballet have something for everyone. And I just feel like their songs, because they're so much more polished and it's not that electric and they're using their instruments and it's more, like I say, it's something for everyone. There's more lyrics in there and it makes you want to sing to them. It's like when you buy an album of someone that you really like and you listen to it and you learn the words and you find yourself singing in the car. That's what Spandau Ballet are. Like I could just imagine them on the radio coming on, everyone knowing the song and singing to it on the way to work or, you know, whatever they're doing in their daily lives. Plus, there was also in gold so when we did our first episode i said i thought 80s was very high pitched and long notes had our first long note he, he holds it for quite a while and i was like there it is that's what i think of the 80s so taken three episodes but i found a long note but no i really enjoyed them they're definitely um like I say, gold, I think Connor and the kids are a bit fed up with me playing that now to the point where the kids at eight and five are starting to know that song. And I didn't realise how much I would like it, considering I used to take the mick out of you. But I really enjoyed Spandau Ballet. Yeah. So Spandau Ballet, so they had their first hit in 1980. They had their last hit in 1987. So they literally did last the whole, pretty much the whole 80s. So, as you said, you had Gary Kemp. He was the main songwriter. And we go into a bit of this a bit later on and why they split up, because that was a, a main thing. I was going to ask what happened if they were doing so well. Yeah. So he was the songwriter. He was also the guitar. Um, he was also the keyboardist. Then you had Tony Hadley. He's the vocalist. So he's the person you hear. He's the singer. I recognise that name. Yeah. You had Steve Norman. He's the saxophone. So, again, we're now talking about saxophonists. We've, that's two groups now we've spoke about tonight. John Keeble was the drummer, and then Martin Kemp was the bass player. Although they have keyboards, it is mainly, as I say, saxophone, drums, proper music rather than being programmed. I think that's what makes it different as well, because it's not just coming from one, one instrument, and it's such a different sound. I think that's what's made these more feel good, and like I say, I'd expect them to be played on the radio. I think it makes a big difference them playing their music and introducing the new ones like a saxophone or drum. So last week when I was saying about New Order and the uh, indie charts and how many number ones they had on the indie charts, however, they are the any in the top 40 chart. 
Obviously, as we said earlier, these had much more hits in the official charts, not necessarily number ones, but they had much more many hits in the official charts, hence you had so many songs to listen to. And I suppose that's where the commercialization or being under a bigger record producer um, and they had bigger budgets as well. So obviously they a bit more support behind them to do the videos, to do the promotion work um, and, and things like that that obviously all help push your record sales up and gain a fan base, which then obviously helps as well. So we've just gone through Spandau. Did you, did you see a big change in their music? What, listening from like the whole list that you gave me? Yeah, so did, did you see a change in the music? All I noticed was, and I don't know if you sent me, in, me them in this way, was that they started off quite chill, then you got your, into your gold, and then it went very smooth, and that's when I realised, ah, oh, they've got a bit of aim at different people and genres, in a sense, of being more romantic compared to upbeat. That's all I noticed. I'm really trying to think about the songs now, whether there's anything that I should have noticed. I just noticed that they, you know, the variation went in different ways. I don't know if that's just the way that you sent me them. No. Okay. So, yeah, they changed their music. So, they started off as a synth pop band, I suppose, because they were around that time, I suppose, and listened to that music and they were involved in the Blitz Club, which I'll come to. And their first song, to, or their first hit, to cut a long story short, that, out of all the, the bands we're talking about tonight, that's the only one that's on the It's Electric. Track 16 is, to cut a long story short, Spandau Ballet. So they were a, a started off as a synth pop band. Now, now you say that they were, they did start off as electric. I can hear it. Yeah. And I guess you'd expect it with it being so early on in the 80s, like you said. Then they sort of changed, I suppose, because of having the musicians that they had and much more expertise. I mean, if you listen to the likes of Gary Newman, the likes of Martin Ware, they've never gone to music school they've never been taught to play instruments and that they've done it themselves and obviously as i say this a lot of it's on the synthesizer i don't think martin kemp was but i know gary kemp said he he's he had a guitar when he was younger whether he was again self-taught i'm, I'm guessing but at least he had a, an instrument rather than a keyboard they then went into what's known as funk now i'll be honest i'm not sure what funk is i think it's sort of like a sophisticated pop but the chant number one is very much a funk. And then by the time they got to True and Gold and everything from them, they were known as more soul rather than an upbeat band. And hence you, what you're saying, it was much slower, smoother, romantic, to evolve with probably what was around at the time and or to just be a bit different as well. So I am right when I say they changed in genres. Yeah, most definitely. Because I didn't think that as a band you could do that, but I guess they did. I just assumed if you're a band, you're in one genre and you kind of stick there and that's where you want to be. But apparently these guys have a little dab in all of them. And I think that just shows how, how good, I suppose, Gary Kemp was. I suppose he's underrated as a songwriter, musician, because he changed their, the way they were going, I suppose, from a, a synth pop with, to cut a long story short, then to a more... As I say, funk, sophisticated pop, whatever you want to call it, with chant number one. And then, as I say, true and gold. And from then on, you know, through the barricades. I mean, what song that is? You didn't even mention that. It's probably my favourite. It's totally different from their earlier stuff. Yeah, I did like that one. But I think I'm more into upbeat and able to have a little bop around. So, But I did like it, but it's a lot more relaxed and chilled out. I think because of how I'm listening to the music, 
Yeah. Like it's on my way to work and on my way back to work, primarily, I want music that's going to get me going instead of chill me out, especially within the job that I do. I need a bit of upbeat before I start. So I think ones like that, as much as I like it, the way that I'm listening to it, maybe I shouldn't listen to it while I'm in my car, I should listen to it as a chill out at home and it might change my feelings. It might become more of my favourite. Yeah. As, as we said, like, you know, you're listening to them in a week. Because of the amount of songs you had this week, you probably only heard each song once. Unless you really liked it, you might have heard it twice. I don't know how you how you do it, or you listen to the videos. Um, did you did you watch any of the videos of Spandau Ballet? Yeah, I watched all of them, but I didn't get much from them this week. Like I found, like I mentioned with Martha, a lot of them are just like live performances as such and i was looking at what they're wearing and the main focus the camera always zooms in on now you now i know who it is but it always zooms in on gary kemp because he's the main vocalist tony hadley tony hadley that's it yeah always zoomed in on him because he's the main vocalist and you didn't have much focus on the others but i just noticed they were either formal or they were very beige i found it funny that gold was focused a lot on the color in the video that i found funny i was like right okay so they really are lengthening out this gold business what i did find is it is they the videos are getting better they're more polished and the artists come across like they're flawless like there's literally they they've got the most smoothest skin it's like they're wax works in a way they're just that their hair's not out of place they're skin's all perfect and i guess that's what you do to be in a mutiny you're not gonna have someone looking like they've just rolled out of bed but across every video that i've watched not just spandau ballet they all look so perfect and there was a lot of neon lights coming into it as well but there weren't much from the videos this week from well from spandau ballet i found so if you remember me spoke in the first episode about Visage and how they got together with Rusty Egan, the DJ. Yeah. And Steve Strange, who was a vocalist. And I said about the Blitz Club. Yeah. Whereas normally that a club being a club, you'd have the DJ, i.e. Rusty Egan. And obviously if he would put on the songs and that's how these songs, you know, the likes of Ultravox, Gary Newman, he played them. And that's what people then obviously got into in the, in these underground clubs, as they were known. So what they had was they used to have like um, on a Tuesday evening or I think it was Tuesday or Thursday. They used to have like a a special members night. And rather than the DJ playing, they had a house band. Okay. Spandau Ballet started out as the house band of Blitz Club. So the Blitz Club kind of founded Spandau Ballet. It it got them noticed and their music out there. And I suppose they, they were able to to test their music on on the crowd but also when you're when i'm saying about what they wore they were the the first part i suppose of the new romantic scene as well so we're going into the new romantic scene with the frilly shirts and you know makeup hair and all that that we were talking about spandau ballet were part of that scene obviously because of being at the blitz block so that do you think that's why they look so flawless? Possibly that they, they looked after themselves and knew how to look in front of the cat. You know, they took time to preen themselves or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, so they were part of the new romantic scene. I mean, they weren't seen as over the top. They weren't, you know, wearing makeup or looking like obviously George and Steve Strange with makeup and everything and what have you. But they were part of that with the frilly shirts and looking good. I guess that's why I think it's so formal. 
Like, I think they had, what are they, are they, I don't know, are they called like bell ties? You know, like when it's just kind of like a little bit of string and thing, like a few of them wearing that, but not as thin. It was a bit thicker. Uh-huh. But I thought, oh, okay, so this is a bit fantasy then. But then that might explain why they look like that then, if they were part of the new romantics. I'm glad they weren't over the top, though, to be fair. Yeah. So I'll tell you how big they were. They were the first band to sign up for Live Aid. Or for, sorry, for Band Aid. Bob Geldof and obviously Majeur, but obviously Bob Geldof was the, the main energy behind it. He wanted both Spandau and Duran Duran, who were the biggest bands at the time, you know, and obviously Wham. But he wanted both of those in, and he knew that if he got them on involved, he would then hopefully get everyone else sort of, you know, because he could just throw their names out. Spandau Ballet, through Gary Kemp, were the first band to sign up. So he saw Gary Kemp. I don't know if it was off chance, but he saw him, said, we're trying to do this. Would you be interested? Yes. He then saw Simon Le Bon or Nick Rhodes, I think it was Simon Le Bon, of Duran Duran. And obviously all he had to turn around and say was, just so you know, Gary and the boys are involved. Are you up for it? And obviously then Duran Duran said yes. Once he got them both on board, that was it. So Spandau Ballet were seen as, if you want to say, the headliners. So they were quite big then. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were, you know, if you if you were to watch videos of them you know the screaming crowds and that that were associated with culture club wham duran duran and spandau were you know it's just something else i suppose it was literally like going back to the beatles nothing in this country had been as big since the beatles as far as screaming crowds and things like that they they were yeah they were massive here's a question for you out of those four who were your favorites um i wasn't really any of those i suppose because i didn't get into music because of my age i wasn't a teenager i suppose it was when i was a teenager i got into it which was a bit bit later so i was i grew up with frankie goes to hollywood they were the biggest and that's what the music i got into but i was still i still listened to music in the 80s anyway as i say through compilation tapes where you go out and think oh you like this and go out and buy out of out of the four for me it was duran duran Really? Yeah. Oh, I really thought you were going to say um, Spandau Ballet. But I think I'm just going back to the video in the car. No, I'd, see, unlike you with Gold and that, I mean, I'd, yes, I like Through the Barricades and I like them as songs, but that wasn't the sort of music I'd go out and buy the, the cassette of. Whereas Duran Duran, I think their music was more to my taste. That's what I preferred, with a bit more of a, a synthy sound, electronically beaty sound, rather than the slower... I mean, yeah, true gold. They they are good songs on their own, but do I want to listen to a whole album of that? Not for me personally, no. Obviously, plenty of other people did. Oh, I would. I'm well and truly in there now. Yeah, well, that, that's good. And that's what we're doing this for, is to introduce you to the music of the 80s and hopefully change your perception of it, you know, now that you're a bit older and mature to, to hopefully understand how good the 80s music actually was. I mean, not all of them, but yeah, this week, definitely. Good. So you, we, we said about them splitting up. Yes. What happened? Because, like I say, the only thing that I know when you say Kemp, the first one I thought was Ross Kemp, and then went, oh, Martin Kemp. But Martin Kemp to me was an actor. So when you say he was in Spandau Ballet, what happened? How did he get there? And what happened to the rest of him? I mean, Martin Kemp, to be honest, only got in the band because of his brother. I mean, he... I don't even know if he knew how to play the bass. He probably had an idea, but <laughs> he, he was sort of um, 
the bloke in Happy Mondays with the, the tambourine sort of thing, although at least he was a bass guitar, I suppose, not a tambourine, but yeah. So they split in the 1990s over disagreements over royalties. Over what? Over royalties. So as a band, you perform and you get, you know, the money comes in from the record sales, touring, uh, merch, all the stuff that comes off of the touring, like merchandise and that. You know, part of it will go to your management and of the costs and then obviously the, the band. But it was split in a like a percentage. Gary Kemp, as the, the sole songwriter, got the biggest percentage of these royalties. And I guess as music has evolved, you can now stream any music that you want so i.e like you gold if everyone let's say on the back of this other people have listened to this and all like gold and everyone downloads gold i don't know how it works with the streaming and you sort of touched on it last week spandau ballet will make money off of gold because of obviously everyone downloading it well he gets the bigger slice of the cake some can argue rightly so he wrote it however the others are saying like obviously tony had saying but without my voice or, you know, without the drums and without this and that, did they bring in that music as well? You know, he's a, he's wrote the song, but the actual music, they pierced together. Hadley, Norman and Keeble, obviously not Martin Kemp, he's not going to go against his brother, but the other three took Gary Kemp to court. So it was quite a high-profile thing at the time, and um, they were unsuccessful. So he was still able to get the, the biggest percentage. Yes, yes. So they were unsuccessful. So that any money coming in from any songs is still the majority of it, or all of it, however it's split up, is still going to go to Gary Kemp. However, due to the legal costs that they'd um, amounted between the other three, the trio then had to sell their shares in Spandau Ballet, the company, to Gary Kemp to pay for the legal bills and the costs. So not only did they lose out on any royalties coming in in future, now they don't even own the songs either, really. So they really screwed themselves over then? Yeah. I mean, obviously, at the time, they thought they were doing right. And obviously, you can imagine then, there was no way they could work together. Martin Kemp and Gary Kemp went off to be actors. So they portrayed the uh, the craze in the film The Cray, so Reggie and Ray, they portrayed them, got good um, feedback from the critics. And obviously Martin then went on to EastEnders on the back of the, the acting he did in that. That's where I know from. Yeah. Ronnie and Reggie, it was not Ray. Ronnie and Reggie Cray. And then Keeble and Hadley and Norman, they toured, but as ex-Spandau Ballet. So it was, they had their names, ex-Spandau Ballet because they didn't own the name Bandau Ballet. Oh, so they toured. And then later on, Keeble and Hadley toured with Neil X from Ziggy Ziggy Sputnik and John McGurch, who I spoke about before, was in Magazine and then Visage. He joined them on a tour. But they have since had a reunion um, and put their differences aside. And now any new material they actually release as either all of them sing songwriters or um, they release them with each of them having a bit of their own songs in it. But they've never hit, obviously hit the heights that they did in the 80s again. I was going to say, they still they still release music. I, I don't know now because I don't think Tony had. I mean, I've seen Tony Hadley at Rewind recent, you know, like in the last couple of years. And um, he's definitely just Tony Hadley. 
but I think they did have it. They well, they definitely did have a reunion, and I know they obviously brought out some songs and um, Steve Norman, I think it was that he did write. He it was the first time that a song other than Gary Kemp's had been used. But I think that it was never going to be like it had been before because of obviously all the water that had gone under the bridge in in the through the court case. Yeah, well, that's really going to affect you as a group, isn't it? So I can understand why. Yeah. But they didn't really help themselves. So I'm guessing, well, I guess if they didn't go through that, I wonder what would have happened if they all stayed amicable with each other. Would they have carried on into the 90s yeah. maybe? But would Martin Kemp have become an actor? Yeah. Would he have been Steve Owen, mm. the baddie in EastEnders? We never know. Just on that as well, I mentioned last week about um, Gary Newman. He he married a, a one of his biggest fans, or stalkers if you want to yeah. say. Martin Kemp is married to one of the Wham backing singers, Shirley of Shirley and Pepsi. I knew he was, I knew who he was married to was to do with music. Yeah, she was a backing singer in Wham. Because uh, I obviously know Martin Kemp's son is Ronan Kemp, and he's on Capital. I know, and he was in I'm a Celeb, so I know a bit about how his parents are both musical backgrounds, but I didn't know that. So that's something for you. Yes, so she was, when you think one of their rivals, not as, I mean, Duran Duran and Spandau were the rivals. Wham! was always linked with them, but it was a bit different. They were a duo, whereas Spandau and Duran Duran were bands or groups, whichever way you want to look at it. And they've been going much, I mean, Wham! didn't come around until 1982. Duran Duran were 1981, but they were around in the 80s. Um, and the Spandau Ballet, as I say, they, they were around much earlier. But they become bigger of not enemies, but rivalry with Duran Duran, the Wham. Yeah, you can see why, because both groups, both early 80s, I guess you, you, I guess the fan base would force them to be rivalries as well, even if they didn't want to be. Yeah. So before I go through their chart history, do you think they had any number ones? And if so, how many of the three that we already now know do you think they had? They must have done. I want... See, I really want to say that gold was one. I want to say, I think Duran Duran had more number ones than Spandau Ballet. So I might go, I want to go with gold. But I don't know if that's because it's such a big hit now. Okay. You're, you're right. Duran Duran had more. So now it's whether did Spandau have one at all or did Duran Duran have three? And you're right. Spandau had one. So Duran Duran had two. And their number one was not gold. Was it true? It was. Ah, that was my other guess. <laughs> if you could have been in my mind, that was what I was going to say. And I was like, no, I'll go with gold. Gold's the bigger one. It's the bigger one. Let's go with that. Well, I got there. I'm getting better. I'm getting better at this guessing thing. Yeah. So I'll quickly go through, because as you said, there is a lot of songs. I don't think as many as Duran Duran, but there is a lot. So they started out, as I say, in 1980 as a synth pop or more of an electronic with, um, to cut a long story short. That got to number five. So it's still very well, you know, top five. Um, 1981, The Freeze, that got to number 17. Um, 1981, Muscle Bound and Glow, so I'm guessing that was a double A side, that got to number 10. Um, 1981, Chant Number One, I Don't Need This Pressure On, that got to number three. So that's again when they've changed their music style, so they've gone more funk, as I said earlier. Uh, 1981, Paint Me Down, that only got to number 30. Uh, 1982, Instinction, which I mentioned last week, 
that got to number 10 and i suppose they'd had to do that because of paint me down which was their one before hadn't a, although it got in the top 40 i suppose from their success up till then that was seen as a flop so i suppose they looked at what trevor horn was doing as i said he was known as the man who invented the 80s they got him on board and suddenly they've got a top 10 hit again with instinction so is instinction a change no i think it's still in in the sort of um with chant number one but i think the way he produced it mixed it obviously helped them and uh yeah got them i suppose they were just worried after having a flop i suppose they weren't used to having a flop um with paint me down as i say it was still top 40 but it didn't break even into the top 20. 1982 again one that you said at the beginning you like lifeline that got to number seven so that done well 1983 communication that got to number 12 and now we're going into the soul music so they've changed now again so we're now in still in 1983 with true suddenly they've hit on a the recipe of success wherever you want to look although they were still successful up to then but suddenly they get they change their their way they're, they're doing their music they've gone more soulful and they come in with their number one they then follow that up in 1983 again with gold and they get number two the next one is only when you leave in 1984 that got to number three so they've literally had three songs in the top three 1984 again i fly for you that got to number nine so it's still in the top 10 that was followed by 1984 highly strung that only got to number 15 but still in the top 20 1984 another song that you mentioned round and round that actually only got to number 18 so yes it's in the top 20 but it's now so you can see where their their career's gone they've started quite well with to cut a long story short at number five they've then gone you know a bit higher again i suppose we chant number one at number three but then they've gone down they and until they went to soul with true number one gold number two only when you leave number three and now they're so that that's their peak and now you can see that they're they're going down um fight for ourselves was number 15 through the barricades was number six and then how many lies number 34 out of all of those they only had like two that were like out of the top 20 so they didn't do too bad but i guess i think through the 80s they followed how the 80s were going like they started electronic they went into the funk then they went into the soul and i guess after that they'd done so well with true gold and only when you leave that they might not have known where to go next to keep to get them back up there plus they also had their breakup and that didn't help but they, i don't they've definitely not released anything since because otherwise i would know about it a lot more i guess because after the 80s it's coming into what i would listen to done well for themselves though Oh, definitely. As I say, they, yeah, they were definitely one of the biggest bands, and the fact that they were seen as a headliner for Band Aid stroke Live Aid shows how big they were at that time, and they were a big player of the eighties. And the fact that they had six albums, ten top ten hits, including one number one, and altogether seventeen top forty hits, shows how big they were. I don't think there'd have been many other groups that could come up with stats like that through their through their music of the eighties. So, shall we move on to their rivals? Yes. So, Duran Duran, what what can you say about them? What did you think of those? Uh, so, again, they were recognisable. I knew Duran Duran as, like, when you said that, they were someone that I recognised. But their songs, again, I, I knew quite a few without realising. Um, so, like, Girls on Film, Rio, Hungry Like the Wolf, The Reflex, I even knew. 
And I really liked it. And as we say, they're getting more polished. So these, I did notice they were still kind of electric a bit, but I still didn't feel like they were, like they're not as raw is the word that we've been using as previous artists that you've given me and there was a lot more variation in it so i don't know if it's that but they definitely sounded like it weren't completely electronic and i I don't know did they use their own instruments again were they an actual band but like one of the things i've written is it is moving out of electric and you can hear that and i did think they were similar to spandau and now you say that they were rivals i guess that's where it comes from the reason they were rivals is because they were similar and they had to fight against each other to get the big hits which obviously duran duran won by having two number ones and again i also thought they were feel good feel good songs as well like i think that's why i've enjoyed this week so much there's a lot more songs that i can sing sing to i think we're realizing that i like to sing as much as i can't i like to in my own car i like to sing so if you're giving me songs like that it's they're gonna do well with me but i think them being more upbeat and dance dance like uh, being able to move to them a bit more has done well with me. Yeah, so I did like these. Funny you say about dance, because they are described as a synth pop and a dance rock. So this another another. What is with all these rocks? Yeah. So uh, again, I couldn't tell you the difference because all music, apart from really electro like craft work, is probably not danceable. But most music, I suppose, in a sense, is danceable if you want to dance. Not that I'm a dancer, but yeah, then they're seen as synth pop dance rock. Which which are what are the difference in their songs? I couldn't tell you. So regarding the makeup of their their band then, so you had the two people that formed it um, who actually went to school together or lived down the same street and that I think it was. Nick Rhodes, he was the keyboardist and principal songwriter, although I don't think they had to put, I think they actually pretty much had um, their songs as Duran Duran rather than... Oh, instead of having the, instead of having the individual listed. Yeah. Or at least they got an agreement. They, they've obviously never fallen out over it. Um, and, <laughs> and John Taylor, who was the bass player. So they were the two that formed it. Um, then they got Roger Taylor on drums. They then got Simon Le Bon. He's from vocals. And they were all from London. And then they got Andy Taylor, who's on guitar. And he's from actually from the Northeast. Unlike with the rival Spandau Ballet and the Kemp Brothers... Although Duran Duran have got three tailors, John, Roger and Andy, none of them are related. It's just a popular name, as we know, like Smith, and they just all happen to be in the same group. So it's a bit like Martha and the Muffins have got two Marthas. I guess Martha was a, a common name in Canada at that time when they were born. Um, the tailors are unrelated. It's just a popular surname and they all happen to have it in the same group. You know what? Out of these groups, you saying about them now having drummers, I think that does make a big difference. Now the drummers are coming and getting involved. I think that's what's drawing me in a bit more. Yeah, they're, they're proper musicians, proper groups. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that makes a difference. Yeah, and I think the reason I like Duran Duran over Spandau is they've still got the keyboard synthesizer sound much more so than, than Spandau, or definitely Spandau's later stuff. Um, so with Duran Duran, they had five albums in the 80s. So one less album than Spandau Ballet. But they were a, a bit later. They, were, they weren't they were till, they didn't have their first hit or in 1981. Whereas Spandau, as I said, was um, 1980. So they were a bit behind. 
they started off just playing um they're, so they're from Birmingham. so most of the groups and bands we said about bef- at the moment are from london which is spandau ballet were from london hence the blitz club sheffield and liverpool which was other t- the two other big s- scene music scenes duran duran are actually from birmingham and they used to play in the rum runner club which was owned by their management and um, I suppose the fact that they've got management shows that they're already a bit more ahead of some of the other previous groups that we spoke about. I thought you said that they were from London. When you were listing their names, you said, so they're all in London. Do you mean that's where they live? Did I say London? Sorry, I meant Birmingham. Right, OK. Spandau Ballet were London. Duran Duran, Birmingham. Yeah, sorry, I might have when I said about Andy Taylor was from the North East. The others, sorry, were from from around Birmingham. So they, they, they mainly played at the Rum Runner Club, obviously got themselves noticed. They then got signed up to EMI. That meant that they had quite a bit of money behind them because they've now got a big record producer to, prom- to promote them. And what EMI done is they got them a stylist. And this is where they're linked in with the Blitz Club because the stylist that EMI bought in was someone called Perry Haynes. And he was on the scene and used to frequently um, obviously visit or go to the, the Blitz Club, he was part of that, the Blitz Kids, as they were known. He was part of that scene. He became a big in fashion, and they and he had a fashion magazine called ID. He was brought on board to style Duran Duran. And he's actually accredited with the, the phrase, New Romantics. So all these acts at the moment with, you know, like so Adam and the Ant Culture Club, they're classed as New Romantics because of how they were dressed and that. Duran Duran were in part of that, obviously, because they're being styled by Perry Haynes. Like the inventor of it. Yeah, he, he was, he's, the, the, the first time that uh, I suppose the phrase was mentioned is has been accredited to, to being him. So whether that's through his magazine, as I say, he, bought, uh, he had a fashion magazine, or ID, and um, whether he coined the phrase in that or whatever, I don't know. But the, the phrase new romantics and what stuck for this, the way they dressed, is accredited to him. So Duran Duran, although from Birmingham, they have got links to the Blitz Club through their stylist, which was bought, which was introduced to them via EMI, their, their now record label. So obviously now they're looking the part, they're dressed the part, they've got the music. What else is coming along? Videos. What did you think of Duran Duran's look and Duran Duran's videos? compared to, say, Spandau Ballet or the others that you've seen up till now? I didn't notice much until I watched a video, Wild Boys, and that's when I noticed they've got dramatic music in there. Uh, not music, dramatic makeup in there. Oh, and then, like, in Rio, they use colours and they're using paint, and I think they're getting a bit more artistic, is what I noticed from them. Girls on film, they've got a bit of hair dye in there, so they're using a bit of colour and getting... They're going on it in a different direction. It's not as bland. There's not as much beige. And they've got longer hair. And I don't know if that's just a coincidence that the guys that were in Duran Duran had long hair, but they've got long hair and they're kind of, they're still like flawless and pristine, but they were a bit more, like I want to use the the word artistic. Um, Like in every one, I was like, they've got long hair again. What they like to film on location. So their videos were the first ones that weren't used. I think there's one that had like a live performance. I don't know which one that was. Oh, the reflex was a live performance. But all the other videos that I've watched were an actual video. 
something to follow. Um, and I've not really seen that since the model when they were on a catwalk. But they get there's a bit more variation and they're using locations. The beige is going and the makeup's coming in a bit more. I wanted to ask, A View to Kill, is that from a film? It is. And I thought so, you can tell that from the video. Just on, um, I don't know what videos you were watching, but I can't think of Duran Duran with long hair. There's so, like, in Planet Earth they've got long hair. Hungry Like the Wolf, there's someone with long hair. A View to Kill, there's someone with long hair. This is because I've written it down, I'm like, long hair. Long hair. I mean, Simon the Bomb White have had like a mullet or longer hair, but I think that's what I mean. Not long hair, like me, past your shoulders. I mean, long hair for a guy, like mullet type things. But no, they had like long, kind of shaggy, shaggy hair, like hair that moved it, but just on their head. I mean, they're inspired by Japan. We haven't come across Japan yet, but they were, they were inspired by Japan. And if you look at the front man of Japan, David Sylvanian, Sylvan Sullivan or something, I can't remember his name now. <laughs> Nick Rhodes is very much, he looks like him in the short bleached blonde and the way he dresses and looks. Um, you can see that he takes his inspiration, I suppose, from Japan's front man. But I think John Taylor even had like red hair. Yeah. That's why I said about like the hair dye, because I noticed they're like they're obviously experimenting. You've got one with red, one with bleach blonde hair. Yeah. So regarding their videos, so they they've as I say, they've got they've now you're now getting big budgets. So as you rightly say again, they've gone on location. So they, they went to Antigua and they shot three music videos on location while in Antigua. So they done Rio, they done Save a Prayer, and I think the other one was Hungry Like a Wolf while they were on location. You can kind of tell that they're shot. I mean, I wouldn't have guessed Hungry Like the Wolf. Because, like, Rio's, like, on the beach and I think Save the Prayer's on a beach. I guess Hungry Like the Wolf is more in the towns. But, yeah, you can tell. I thought Rio and Save the Prayer were similar. It was more in, like, the, the rainforest or the bit in the Hungry Like a Wolf. But I, I'm pretty sure that was the other one that was shot on location in Antigua. So, obviously, they've got big budget to now go abroad, you know, to, to these exotic places. And we're talking about in the 80s, where travel still wasn't a big thing, unless you had money. Um, they're going on location to somewhere like Antigua, which even now is still quite an exotic location. And Wild Boys is actually cost over £1 million, which back then, you know, gosh knows how much, what that is in today's money. Um, it's a staggering amount of money to to put into a music video at the time. And it was a record. It surpassed Michael Jackson's Thriller. So Thriller was the most expensive video up to Wild Boy. I wouldn't expect Wild Boys to be that uh, that expensive. Like I, like, I just thought, considering it's a very dark video, like, it's not like they've got lighting going on, so they could have filmed that anywhere. They could, like, I wouldn't expect that to cost a million pounds. I'm quite shocked. Out of all the film, uh, out of all the videos, didn't expect that one to be most expensive. Yeah. So that was in 1984, and it wasn't beaten until 1987 by Michael Jackson's Bad. It was Michael Jackson's Thriller that was the most expensive video, and it was Michael Jackson's Bad that then that then overtook as the most expensive uh-huh. video. But up until then, Wild Boys between 84 when it was made until 1987 was the most expensive video. So quite, you know, when you when you think of the 80s, from 84 to 87, the amount of songs that would have been around and with MTV and the music video being such a big thing, no video was made in those years between 84 and 87 to surpass the amount that was, was put into Wild Boys. 
But do you think it helps because you say they had the management, so they had the money to begin with anyway, like they had the bigger budgets with being signed to quite a big management earlier? Absolutely, definitely. I mean, when you think of Ultravox with Vienna, their um, record company wouldn't pay for the video. And it was Majeur that was obviously, you know, the pioneer that he was and the, the way he looked ahead saying that we need a video. You, you need to get out onto the music channel MTV. They actually paid for the video themselves, which was um, between six and seven thousand, which is, I think, about I think I read it was like 30,000 in today's money. Well, you could have bought a house back then for 30,000. So they they obviously knew how much Vienna needed the video to to get vienna played on mtv to help vienna although it didn't get to number one obviously as we we spoke about it it should have and it got to number two but they were prepared with their own money to pay thirty thousand pounds as it is today the equivalent of a hat as i say buying a house back then whereas duran duran what three years later in 1984 four years later they are spending in excess of a million pounds. That's crazy. So, but I guess Ultravox must have known videos are where it's at. It's where you're going to get a lot of your views getting on MTV. So they knew what they were doing. And then by the time Duran Duran come about, they're with this management and they've kind of got like a free bypass as a, a sense, really. They'll be able to just have that bigger budget and get it out there. So it definitely helped them, especially if they're surpassing Michael Jackson. Yeah. So when when I'm saying that they were they went to Antigua, that was 1982. That's why I'm I'm thinking it was Hungry Like a Wolf, Save a Prayer, and Rio because all of those were 1982. It was Duran Duran and Buggles who were the two that were from the feedback was getting the most um, sales in America on the back of MTV, which was obviously at the moment only in America. And it was literally like one half of the street had it had cable TV and had MTV. The other half didn't. And that half were going into their local record stores and buying these records of Buggles and Duran Duran because they were seeing them. And others were like, who are these people? Where where you hit? Where, you know, what, what's this music? Because obviously they hadn't come across them. But it definitely helped Duran Duran. Definitely. I wouldn't have thought that Duran Duran would have been bigger. I don't know why I feel like Spandau Ballet were bigger than Duran Duran. No. And so, as you just said about View to a Kill, so Duran Duran got the, the prize of having a James Bond music video. So James Bond, A View to a Kill, they had the um, the theme tune or the, the, the main song soundtrack. accredited yeah, to the soundtrack of A View to a Kill. Oh, wow. Yeah, you can tell it is because... You know, like when songs are part of a film and they get a bit like they don't make an official video for it. They get a bit lazy by just having the artist sing in there and then having clips from the film. I was like, right, this this isn't the this isn't Duran Duran. This is from some sort of film. But I didn't know it was James Bond. So that's even more astonishing. Like They've obviously they've got it big time. You obviously didn't watch it till the end because there is the giveaway. Is there? Right at the end, it's Simon Le Bon goes, I'm Simon. Simon Le Bon, as in I'm James, James Bond. Oh, I didn't hear that. I was watching it more than... Yeah, right, right at the very end. So, yeah. Mm. I'm going to have to go back and see that now. Yeah. So, they had five albums in the 80s. They had 12 top 10 hits. As you've already now know, they had two number ones. And they had altogether 20 top 40 hits. So, you had 20 songs of theirs to listen to. So, Duran Duran, I would say come out on top of the two but 
did they was that because they had much more money a bigger record producer to to get their name out there through mtv you know with the videos and that you could you could probably say yes i was just about to say did they could you say they cheated a little bit though because they had that kind of head start with the management and the money and producing and everything but no matter how they did it, they still did well and obviously got some big hits. So they can't, they're not going to be complaining, are they? And nor are their fans. Um, yeah, so go, I mean, going back to the video, I mean, they they were one, if not the forerunner, as I said, in making videos. But they done it in, more professionally on a camera with a 35mm film rather than a cheaper videotape. So we they, they're going into like movie stuff. So you'll see this, I think it's with Duran Duran you're seeing this, the changeover from the the video making just as much or needing much, just as much focus as the, of the package as the music. So whereas the music was the main thing and in the video, with Duran Duran, just as much money, if not more, was spent on the video than the music. You can tell that because, like I say, a lot of it was on location and it's not just a performance. They're actually making a video. It's got a story or there's something going on for you to watch instead of just watching the band play. So you can tell. But now I know that um, they had that bit more money. You can definitely tell. Yeah. I mean, they'd have had a director and everything. I mean, I think Russell, uh, I can't think of his surname, Macaulay or something. He was a big director of films now. I think he was a director of some of their videos. Um, So they had an actual film director doing their music videos which are what five minutes not even that long just as much as probably as i say being spent on it as much as their actual music yeah they did have that head start then yeah so regarding their um their songs then i guess in the number ones yeah so what what do you think the number ones were then so we know there's two what what do you think hungry like the wolf okay and rio Ooh, so you're not going to save a prayer, which you said was your favourite. It's my favourite. Doesn't mean that everyone else wanted to vote for it. Why is that a number one? You'll find out as I go through it. So 1981 was their first hit, and that was Planet Earth. That got to number 12. Then Careless Memories, which I said was directed by Perry Haynes, their their stylist. So he done also directed one of their videos. That wasn't such a great hit. That only got to number 37. So it was a bit of a flop. Then they had their biggest hit to date um, in 1981 with Girls on Film. That got to number five. So now they, they're now being seen now. Also in 1981, My Own Way got to number 14. 1982, Hungry Like the Wolf, number five. Oh, okay. 1982, Save a Prayer, number two. 1982, Rio, number nine. Nah, where's their number ones then? <laughs> the Reflex is a number one. 1983, Is There Something I Should Know, was Duran Duran's first number one. So they literally went five, two, nine, one. 1983, Union of the Snake, number three. 1984, New Moon on Monday, number nine. 1984 again, The Reflex, number one. Yeah, so I've got it second guess. There we go. Then 1984 again, Wild Boys, we've already said about how much money was spent on on the video for that. So it wasn't completely wasted because it got to number two. Oh, not bad then. Uh, 1985 was their James Bond, A View to a Kill, number two. They're in the top ten. 1986, Notorious, number seven. 
So they're still getting, you know, you think we've we've gone from Hungry Like a Wolf in 1982, everything they've released. I say everything because there might have been some that we I haven't written down that were outside the top 40. But those that charted have all got into the top 10 or even most of them top five. 1987, Skin Trade, number 22. So they've hit their peak and now you're seeing the, the slope. Um, again, 1987, Meet El President or Presidente, number 24. 1988, I Don't Want Your Love, 14. Mm. 1989, All She Wants Is, number 9. 1989, Do You Believe in Shame, number 30. And then 1989, Burning Ground, number 31. But they were still having hits in the 90s, and I think even in the noughties, they were still getting hits. Not to the degree of the 1980s, obviously. Shocked with that, then? With who their number ones? No. Mm. Is there something I should know? I was kind of like, really? But I did like I did like that song. But I guess for me, I get shocked when it's not one that I knew already. Because I feel like the ones that I know already, I would have thought they'd be the bigger ones for me to still be knowing them now. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, so that's shocking when the ones that I can, like, when you send me the list, I'm like, already I know that one, that one, that one without listening to them. It is a shock when they're not number one. But then when they're still making it into the top ten, you can see why they did so well. So, no, I'm not, I'm not shocked. They did, you know, they've obviously done well for themselves. And, like, say, only at, like, skin trade did they start going further down towards 40 but they were still in the top 40. So for uh, that many songs to have that many hit at that time when, by the sounds of it, there were so many groups and, well, just so much music coming out of the 80s, there's obviously a big competition. So for them to be able to do that, hats off to them. Okay. Moving on then to the last band, Arcadia. What did you make of them? Not much about them, to be honest. I mean, there was only two songs I didn't, I will admit, I didn't do what I did with Martha and the Muffins and listen to others. Okay. But I think Martha and the Muffins I did because I I only had one to listen to, so I really wanted to see what was going on elsewhere. So I got given these two. I think the difference was as well, I liked Echo Beach, whereas Election Day and The Promise weren't much about them. Like they, this week, they're the most electronic that I had. If you turn around and say they weren't electronic, then... I've got so wrong with me. Okay. Did you did you watch a video of Election Day? Yeah, very gossip gothic. Okay. Did you notice anything about it, about the people in it? No. I just noticed they were gothic eye makeup, like very black, very black and dark. Okay. I'll just read about Arcadia. So you're right, they were uh I'm not I don't know if you want to call them synth pop. Um I suppose yeah, they're, they're I want that pop. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely yeah, they're pop. They were a new wave band, and yeah, I suppose they were more simple. But Arcadia were a new wave British group formed in 1985. So the reason I bought them, so they're, although we're going in chronicle or, or as much chronicle as I can, I've brought these forward for this reason. Okay. Are you ready for this? Okay. So this is your... Is this um, my shocker for this week? It's, it's going to be. Uh, I thought you may have seen it in the video, if you'd seen a video. Um but obviously not, or in the, even in the sound of them. This this may shock you. Arcadia were a new wave British group formed in 1985 by Simon Le Bon, Nick Rhodes and Roger Taylor of Duran Duran as a side project during a break in that band's schedule. They don't sound anything like Duran Duran. How am I going to notice that? 
there you go. I would like them if they sounded like Duran Duran. <laughs> These 80s people get very bored. They like all their side projects, don't they? You've got Mid-Jewel hitting every blooming person in the 80s. Like, oh, yeah, I want a, I want a bit of bit of yours. Uh, yeah, you can be my side. Now you've got Duran Duran, like, oh, do you know what? We've got a break. Let's not spend it with our families and have a chill. Let's just go make some more music. But under a different title. Right, it's very music. But they, look, they sound nothing like them. The funny thing is that while those three were doing that, Andy Taylor and John Taylor were forming a super group called Power Station. That's another visage going on then. Um, with some other musicians, which is why I haven't brought them into it. I'll leave them till, till when we get to that era. But they were off doing their own thing while these three were doing theirs um so yeah so it was a side project um with three of the band members from duran duran no one else it was just those three so arcadia is made up of nick rhodes one of the tailors and the other guy Simon LeBron, yeah. nah they look they went in there to be some different other persona <laughs> because that that's not the same people i'm gonna go back and look now but the first thing I thought was these are gothic. There's a lot of eye, heavy eye makeup. Duran Duran didn't have that. So they, they just wanted to have a little fun game of can people guess that this is us? It probably just started by having a laugh and not wanting to get noticed on the streets and then thought, you know what, let's make more money out of this, produce more music. So they, they only done one album. So they were only, they're only active between 85 and 86. As I said, it was a break in, obviously, Duran Duran. Uh, however, off that album, they had four singles. Um, obviously, as you know, because you've only listened to two, only two singles broke into the top 40. Their other two was Goodbye Is Forever and The Flame. The two that you listened to, Election Day, which you did pick as your most preferred song. So that was 1985. That got to number seven. So it did get into the top 10. So it could have quite easily have been a Duran Duran song. Whether it got there... Um, because people thought that maybe it's going to be like Duran Duran music. I don't know. They'd listened to it and bought it. Yeah. However, The Promise, which featured David Gilmore and Sting, that um, was released in 1986 and that only got to number 37. So David Gilmore was like from the 70s with Pink Floyd. I mean, Pink Floyd were a big group. He um, he was part of it. And obviously Sting was from the police. OK, yeah. They were involved in that. But yeah, it only got that one only got to number 37. So their fan base obviously wasn't they or they just went out and bought the album. But yeah, it was it was a short lived experiment project. But I just wanted to include it. They had, did have a couple of hits. And as I say, they had a top 10 hit. Uh, I just wanted to see your your slant on it and whether you'd maybe even notice it, it was to do with Duran Duran, which obviously you didn't. I would never have noticed that. Do they like to admit that they did that? I'm not. I mean, I'm not a big Durant. You know, I said I like them out of the four, but I've you know, I've I've only got their decade album, which is like a greatest hits. They're not. They weren't someone I followed. I mean, I don't know what their reactions are. No, they were. They were um, a girls. You know, the girls at the time. You know, so in my class at school, you had your Spandals, you had your Wham, and you had your Duran Duran. They used to wear sweatbands with Duran Duran or Wham, depending on which camp you were in. Was Mum one of them? Because it's where mum likes Duran Duran. I think your mum, I don't know if she liked it. Obviously, I didn't know your mum, obviously, that early. But oh, yeah, no, I think no, your no. mum was definitely Wet, 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 which yeah. uh, Wet, Wet, Wet were much later. And Wet, Wet, Wet were probably more soul music. So they would have been more Spandau Ballet. Maybe mum's sort of. Spandau Ballet. So, yeah, but um, I, I couldn't tell. I, don't, I forget how young you are. Not young. I mean, like, 
at the beginning of the 80s. I forget that you wouldn't have known mum then. It would have been later on in the 80s. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, Arcadia is not something that's mentioned a lot. And I don't even think, I mean, I've heard of Election Day. Hence, I obviously, they're on the list. I didn't realise how many members were in, or people that were in it. I thought it was like a super group like um visage and um and there was another one with neil tennant um that i can't remember at the moment electoral project but it's not something that when they do seem to do interviews now it's not something that gets mentioned really so no i'm not surprised you want to just ignore that pretend it didn't happen to be honest uh, it would have been i think a side project as in music that they hadn't you experimented before so maybe they wanted to go more electronic and which obviously wasn't the direction Duran Duran was going in and I definitely read about John Taylor wanting to be more rock rocky so hence he obviously didn't that way him and Andy Taylor as I say they went with the power station um which was a totally different music I think that the music was, was a bit different it was just something I wanted to experiment as a as it was a project okay so before we go on to your hit and miss I just wanted to ask, did you get to listen to the Gary Newman, Our Friends Electric against Sugar Babes, was it Freak? Freak Like Me. Yes. Yeah, I did. I actually listened to it as soon as we got off and I got Connor to hear it as well. So I listened to Freak Like Me first because I was like, I know that song. Listened to it and went, okay, I'm hearing that. And then put Our Friends Electric on and I was like, oh my God, it's another one. So, yeah, I heard it and I heard it again. And it's weird because I think Freak Like Me, they start singing like straight away, but you can hear it in the background. It sounded like really similar in the sense that the instrument sounded the same, whereas the Coldplay and was it Craftwork? Yes. Computer love. Yeah. They, you could tell they were like different instruments, whereas these sounded exactly the same, like they'd taken it straight from them. Taken it I was going to say, I think they actually sampled to, as in took the music yeah whereas Coldplay made it their own yes yeah yeah but no heard it and it it is weird when you mention these things because I'm like I've heard it and especially with this one because Sugar Babes is something that I grew up with and listened to whereas I didn't listen to Our Friends Electric so well I've never put two and two together I guess it's like you like you listen to Our Friends Electric and you don't really know who Sugar Babes are but it's weird to hear it yeah okay Okay, before I give you next week's listens, we better just quickly go through this week and see if any of the songs have influenced you to be a hit or a miss. So it's a bit hard this week because obviously there was a few that didn't have many songs. Obviously, Martha and the Muffins, you only had one song. So it's a, mm-hmm. um, obviously it's, it's a bit hard to call them a, a hit, I guess. Yeah, the song is a hit, but I put them as a miss only because they've only ever had that Echo Beach. And obviously, like I said, I listened to more than one song and they were just similar to the Echo Beach. So it didn't really change much. Um, so I put them as a miss, but Echo Beach is a hit, like on its own. Yeah. So you listen to, you definitely listen to the song again. Yeah. But go out and buy an album of theirs, obviously, would be probably a no. Yeah. Like we said, that she's kind of still going, but I wouldn't go and listen to her. I wouldn't be interested in any of her stuff. Just, just Echo Beach. We'd stay with that one. Um, Spandau Ballet, though, I think that's an obvious hit. It's got a lot of songs that I've listened to. And then, like I say, I recognised a lot of them and I found it hard to choose to the point where I had two favourite songs, not including Ben Gold. So I guess it's three favourites, but they're a definite hit. And I think because they're so well known as well that even now anyone would listen to them and know who they are. So they've definitely stood the test of time in that sense. 
Same with Duran Duran. They're another hit, again, because they're so recognisable. And I think because you say, like, these two are part of the big four and they're all going to be a hit, as you still know them now. Like, I knew them probably without even your influence. I would have had something to do with them. So they're a hit. And then Arcadia, I put as a myth, just because as much as now I found out that they're part, they are like Duran Duran, um, no. If they sounded more like Duran Duran, they'd be a hit. But it's just a no from me. I didn't like them. And like you can feel that it's older. Whereas like obviously Duran Duran has found our ballet are the 80s. So they are old for me to be listening to. But Arcadia just feels like even when it would have been around in the 80s, it feels old. Like it just didn't fit in with what was going on at that time. I guess I probably would have guessed what you'd have gone this week. And it's probably a good thing you've gone Duran Duran and Spandau as a hit. Because if you didn't, then the rest of this podcast would rapidly go downhill, I think. Because that, as I say, would then be into the the big fours or the big commercial four, so to speak. If you didn't like them, we'd have trouble trying to convince you of some of the others coming your way. Um, Arcadia, as I say, they were a side project, so I'm not surprised. A bit like Martha and the Muffins, with just like a one-hit wonder, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Arcadia were a side project while they were, as we said, on off schedule, and um, it was just a, a one album. Just them, I suppose. You know, if it, if it was like Duran Duran, then it would have been. It sh- it should have been, I suppose, part of Duran Duran. If you get what I mean, if it was exactly the same, you know, Duran Duran fans again. Why couldn't that have been a hit single for? Because if it had the name Duran Duran, that would have sold songs on its own because the fans would have bought it. But obviously by changing like the brand yes yeah so obviously they wanted it as a project they didn't use the name duran duran to sell it they just wanted to you know and as i say it wasn't the whole of the group it was just the three of them so yeah i i get what you're saying it was totally different in that sense although i do think election day if you listen to it could have been a duran duran song well yeah that was that was my favorite song as well yeah. election day so i think got something in there but no i i totally probably agreed with what you've gone with on the hits and miss um, okay, so are you ready for this week's reveal of who you're going to be listening to for next week's discussion? Yeah, give them to me. Okay, so it's um it's a bit of a mix of so you've listened to the electronic synth pop sounds and you've obviously listened to a bit now of what were the new romantic. So this week you've got a bit of a mixture between groups that are known as bands that are known as the new romantic side of it, but also some that are synth pop. Okay. So you've got Japan, Soft Cell, The Vapors, and Adam and the Ants. Have you heard of any of those? Soft Cell with Tainted Love, but that's it. And actually, Adam and the Ants. I think Connor had a phone call with his dad, and his like he was talking about our podcast. And I think his dad mentioned Adam and the Ants, but I've never heard of him. It's only because Connor asked me Adam and the Ants, and I was like, don't know who you're on about, but I'll see if Dad ever gives them to me. And then weirdly, you're telling me now. Okay, so that's it. I think we'll end this week's podcast there. I've got nothing to offer this week as um, facts or anything for you to to look into. So we will leave it there and say goodbye. Yeah, and I'll speak to you next week. You will indeed. Bye, Dad. Bye.